for joining us on another episode of the Key Life Fellowship Men's Bible Study Podcast, taught by Pastor Kirk Hall. We pray that through this podcast that you would grow your grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. At this time, please open your Bibles and follow along as the Holy Spirit unveils God's truths to your heart. Thank you all for the courtesy laughs. We're going to get serious now, though, and we're going to stay serious. We're going to be looking at Ephesians. You can go ahead and, and turn to Ephesians in your Bible. We will be referencing Ephesians a lot, but let me just go ahead and give you this, this heads up. Um, go ahead and put a bookmark or a finger there in Acts, because we're going to look at Acts a lot tonight as we set up uh, some background information on this wonderful book that we will be studying and it is full of theology. It is also full of practical lessons for the Christian. And, and I love the way that Paul writes in that manner. He will give us theology, and then he will give us practical application in, in most everything that he writes. And that's important that we remember that, uh, that we don't just become so theological that we don't practice and, and experience what we have learned to believe, that we actually live those things, and we live those things out uh, for the glory of God. So Ephesians is one of those books that you're going to see that as clear as anything else that we could read in Scripture. John Calvin said this about Ephesians. He said in Ephesians, uh, in referencing Ephesians, he says, he um, shows us that Christ has so well provided for his church that if we know how to use the gifts of grace he offers us, we shall have full and perfect happiness. Along with this, he warns such as have been instructed in the truth of the gospel to lead a holy life and to show that they have profited as they ought to do in God's school. Uh, John Calvin held this book in high esteem, um, and, and you have, if you have any opportunity to read his sermons on Ephesians, uh, they, are, they are wonderful. I have not read them all, but I have been, as I have been preparing, reading the things that, that John Calvin wrote in regard and preached in regard to Ephesians. And if you know anything about the way that John Calvin preached, he would take a text, and he would preach a few verses from that text, and you can learn a lot through what you see, the insight that he had and the knowledge that he had. Charles Hodge, another theologian, uh, he said this, that, that Paul impresses upon his readers reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ as the great principle of Christian obedience. I thought that was amazing. What a wonderful statement, that reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ, it ought to be the great principle of Christian obedience, that we are obedient to the Word of God out of our reverence for Christ. Hodge says that Ephesians uh, points this out, that that ought to be our motivation. And, and I want us to see that as we study Ephesians, that the sufficiency of Christ, what He did for us at the cross, um, how He rescued us according to the will of the Father, when we see that um, our reverence for what Christ did and for who Christ is ought to bring us to a point of practical obedience to what he has commanded us in his word. John MacArthur says this in reference to Ephesians. He, he said this, it tells the Christian what they possess and how they can claim and enjoy their possessions. I love how he worded that. It, Ephesians is going to teach us 
what we possess, and we know this, that we possess everything that we possess spiritually because of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. So Ephesians is going to define for us what we possess, what we have been graciously given in Christ, and how we can claim and enjoy the possession that we've been given. And don't we know this by now, um, that our sole purpose, the chief end of man, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. MacArthur brings that out. That Ephesians is going to show us what we possess in Christ and how we can truly enjoy that possession. I want you to, at the end of this study, enjoy the fact that you possess a right relationship with God the Father through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that He paid for you to have according to the set plan and foreknowledge of God. I want you to understand that when we get done with this because in that, you can then enjoy and be settled in what you have in Christ. So simply put, if we were to break it down, in my own words, I would say this Ephesians teaches us who God is, who God says we are in Christ, and how to live as Christians. If you wanted to simplify the book of Ephesians before we go through it and analyze it, we could say that. It teaches us who God is, who God says we are in Christ, and how to live as Christians. So tonight we are going to jump into an intro, kind of a, a brief flyover look at Ephesians and also the author of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, because anytime we study anything that Paul has written as the Apostle to the Gentiles, it should speak to us, a room full of Gentile believers. It should speak to us to know that his obedience and the obedience of those who he discipled, because of that, we as Gentiles on the other side of the earth are now walking with Christ. We are now forgiven of all of our sin. We are now enjoying fellowship through the Holy Spirit with God the Father, which we couldn't ever enjoy unless the gospel had reached us. And I'm thankful for that when we look at these things. So tonight we're going to open up and begin to look at this intro. Again, as I've already said, the first three chapters of this book, they're going to be strictly theological. He's going to teach us some theological concepts. In fact, there are some of the concepts and some of the truths that we have looked at in our previous studies that we looked at the doctrines of grace. And then we're going to look at the last three books, which are going to give us that practical application. But let's start with the church. And I know you guys who are here quite often, you are familiar with the church of Ephesus. You became familiar with the church at, at Ephesus when we went through Revelation last time. Uh, here recently on Sunday morning as we are revisiting those churches in, in sort of a different manner. Um, but as we are re revisiting those churches, we have covered Ephesians and, and the city of Ephesus uh, once again. We're going to do that again tonight. Some of you, you, you may not have caught those teachings. Um, we're going to talk a lot about some of the same stuff we've talked about before, but we can't not talk about it in setting up our understanding for this letter. So Paul visits um, us here um, with this letter and gives this to us. And we see that Paul was writing this because this place was dear to his heart. Um, I, I love when we see the Apostle Paul writing to a group of believers and, and it is obvious that these are real people, a real church, and that they were dear to his heart. 
And they were specifically dear to his heart because he, on his second and third missionary journeys, if you will follow along in Acts and study these things, Acts chapter 18 and 19, both of those chapters contain information about the Apostle Paul visiting this place called Ephesus. And we learned about Ephesus in our Revelation study. We've talked about it again recently. Fourth largest city in the Roman Empire of that time, located, of course, in Asia Minor, which is now, as we know, modern-day Turkey. Had a population of 250 uh, to 500,000 people, a relatively large city of the day. Um, again, four travel routes, they converged there. Very important that we know that. People from all over were traveling in and out and trading in Ephesus. This was an, a, a hub and an epicenter of trade in the days of the Apostle Paul. Why do we look at these things? Because it sets up the background so that we know what is going on as Paul writes this letter. This was a center, of course, of Roman ideology. And with Roman ideology comes what? Paganism, idolatry, sexual immorality, all of the things that would define the Roman Empire. You see those things in Ephesus. Um, again, a center of these things. Home of, as you know, um, the temple of the, guard, the goddess Artemis, who was that false goddess of fertility, and in the worship of Artemis, we had all sorts of sexual immorality and temple prostitution and meat being eaten that were sacrificed to idols, um, all sorts of debauchery and things that went along with the worship of Artemis. But Artemis was not the extent of their paganism. Fourteen other known pagan deities, that doesn't mean that was exclusive. That's 14 that history can confirm were known uh, there in Ephesus. And, and these folks were riddled with this type of false worship and pagan idolatry. So Acts chapter 19, verses 23 through 41, uh, we see a very clear picture of how serious the the worship of Artemis was. You guys know this account and how um, one of the silversmiths there who was making um, idols for people to purchase, uh, he was threatened because the Apostle Paul and the influence of the early church had come into Ephesus and people were turning away from idols and turning to Christ and he was losing business. And as we read that story in Acts chapter 19, if you never have, if you never have read that, go and read it when you have time. Um, but you see the, the greed of wicked man. Um, this person was upset and, and started a riot and it went out into the streets and all sorts of interesting things happened. So uh, we can see that this place was um, controlled by idolatry, even in the marketplace. And so we kind of have an idea of the city. Most of you know those facts. Those are important and they will be important as we travel through. Remind yourself of that. So many times we begin to study something and we have zero background to that. and We don't really know the culture that it's written in or the culture that it's written to. We don't even have a, a clear understanding of the city of that day. Those things are important. Also what's important to understanding Ephesus is the background of this church here. Um, it was a small church. It was founded here through the influence of the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey. Acts chapter 18, verse 19, says this. It says, They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila, 
he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So we see the account there on Paul's second missionary journey where he goes into Ephesus and he leaves a certain couple there, Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, the liberals like to say Priscilla's name first because that means she was the pastor of the church. But that's not what that means at all. He left these two there uh, to do mission work and to be used by God to establish this church here in this area known as Ephesus. In fact, Acts chapter 18, verse 24 speaks of them, and it speaks of another man who we will become familiar with named Apollos. But it says here in 24 of Acts chapter 18, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So it is Aquila and Priscilla who actually, there in Ephesus, in that small church, there in the home, they influenced men like Apollos. And Apollos, as we know, became one of the leaders in the church, and God used Apollos to spread the gospel through uh, parts of Greece in the area that, that we know as Greece. And so um, their influence there, though seemingly small at some, some points in time, actually uh, God used to spread the gospel further through this area. Um, in fact, it was Apollos. If you remember Paul um, talking to the Corinthians, they were in arguments. Some of them were claiming to be of Cephas, some of them claiming to be of Paul, some of them claiming to be of Apollos, and he's like, we're not, gonna, we're not going to argue who you belong to, because the important thing is that we all belong to Christ, and uh, I, I do my work, Cephas does his work, Apollos does his work, and so Apollos mentioned there uh, with some pretty big names in the early church, and, and we see that the influence of the church at Ephesus obviously discipled him and prepared him for the ministry that that God would have further for Apollos. So on Paul's third missionary journey, uh, he re returned here. He returned here to strengthen the work that Aquila and Priscilla had begun. Uh, they had begun this, again, small work there in their home. And Paul this time would stay in, a, in Ephesus for about three years uh, before leaving. So he would stay there for three years of his life, um, strengthening the church, encouraging the church, teaching the church, bringing them further along. He was discipling them and, and teaching them the truth so that they would become stronger. Can you imagine being in a church where the Apostle Paul came for three years and taught you? I could imagine that there was some serious growth that went on in that body. And so he was there for three years teaching this particular place. And then he left. And upon leaving, he urged young Timothy. And we know about Timothy through the pastoral epistles where Paul would minister to him and encourage and nurture him, even correct him when he needed it. Upon leaving, Paul urged Timothy to stay there in Ephesus, and he urged him to stay there for a reason. And that reason we see in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 3. He says that there to Timothy, As I urge you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrine any longer nor to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Paul left Timothy there so that he could continue to teach sound doctrine and straighten out any false teaching that was going on in the midst of Ephesus, there at the church in Ephesus. And so we see that Timothy was commissioned and left there by the Apostle Paul to pastor that church. And he would serve there for a few years as their pastor, fighting against false teachings, um, false teachings of men who we see in Scripture. I mean, Hymenaeus and Alexander, those two that Paul would name by name and say that they were false teachers and actually instructed Timothy to line them out and to correct them and instructed him to beware of their teaching because it was gangrenous, it was cancerous to the church. And so Paul taught Timothy there at Ephesus that it's a pastor's job uh, to stand and, and to contend for the faith, just as Jude says. Uh, when he wrote to the church, Jude wrote to the church that I want to talk to you about Christ and our great salvation, but I can't do that because of all the false teaching that has crept in. I've got to encourage you to contend for the faith. So Paul was doing the same uh, with Timothy. He left him there. He said, contend for the faith. And we're going to see that that was something that Timothy did do. But we know this. As we studied Revelation, uh, we, we got to Revelation chapter 2 in our study. It was kind of disheartening when we realized that this is the same Ephesus in chapter 2 of Revelation where the Lord says, I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Um, at some point in time, unfortunately, this church had lost sight of what their purpose and their true love was, which was Christ. And we, we can look through Scripture from Acts all the way through Paul's writings, even his writings to young Timothy there as the pastor. We can see at one time this was a church that was learning and growing, focused. Even though they were struggling and even though they were persecuted in the midst of all of the idolatry that was going on in the place that we have looked at even tonight called Ephesus. Um, these men, these women, at some point in time, for whatever reasons, uh, began to forsake their first love. So same Ephesus that we see there, same church that the Lord spoke to in John's vision and had him write these things down and deliver a literal letter to them, instructing them about what the Lord desired of them. So as we prepare to study this, keep these things in mind. The church at Ephesus, understand a little about the place. Understand a little about the background of the church. It's going to help us as we dive into this so that we don't think so many times as people do out of context. Because part of keeping things in their proper context is understanding the background of where these things actually took place, right? Did you know the Ten Commandments were given on Mount Sinai, not, not on the lawn of the Washington Monument? Right? But it, many times in our American minds, we get confused. We think that, that Christianity originated with us, and, and it, it begins and ends with us, and it's so much bigger than that, isn't it? We're going to learn that as we keep things in their proper context and keep the proper perspective on things as we walk through uh, this epistle. So we see the, the church at Ephesus, the, the town, the city where this took place, the background and the, 
initial beginnings of this church. Very important things for us to remember. Let's move to the next thing I don't want us to cover tonight, and this is the called messenger. This is the Apostle Paul. We're going to look deeply into this um, next week as we start this. We're going to talk a lot about Paul, and you can't talk about the influence of the gospel on the Gentile culture without talking about Paul, the one who was called as the apostle to the Gentiles. And so I would say this to each of you, um, familiarize yourself with the apostle Paul. And why that is so important is because his whole life, when you begin to look at it, I'll go all the way back to his childhood, we're going to get a glimpse into that tonight. We're not going to exhaust that by any means, nor could we do that in weeks or even probably years. But if you go and you look at the big picture of the life of the Apostle Paul, you see how God sovereignly arranged every detail of his life. Um, he was a Roman citizen, also a devout Jew, at one time persecuting the church, understanding the Gentile culture like no one else, but also understanding the Jewish culture like no one else, being raised to understand the Old Testament Scriptures so that he could actually have all the dots connected, and he's going to use, and we're going to see in Ephesians, the term mystery, uh, those things that were kept hidden uh, for so long. Uh, God specifically called and crafted the Apostle Paul so that these mysteries could make sense to him so that he could then communicate these things to the people who he was reaching with the gospel and discipling in his life and ministry. So we see that um, the Apostle Paul is very important, and we need to know a little bit about, about him to understand anything that he has written. So we look at his life and his background. Let's look at the past, because uh, just like us, the Apostle Paul, who was once Saul, many of you know that, many of you don't, um, but he was once a man named Saul, and he had a past, just like you and just like me, and his past was not a very good one. Neither was mine. I'm thankful for the grace of God and the mercy that the Lord Jesus Christ has shown me. Paul was no exception. He had a past. And we're going to look at that. In fact, if you have your Bibles, I told you to turn to Acts. We're going to look there a lot. So this is some rather large portions of Scripture. So turn there, Acts chapter 8. We're going to be introduced to this man named Saul. Acts chapter 7, give you a little background. Uh, the church is very new, and the church has not been extended out of Jerusalem yet, even though Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Um, in Acts chapter 7, um, the church is still comfortably staying in Jerusalem. Um, good things happening, one heart, one mind, meeting daily, uh, breaking bread together, praying, fellowshipping. Worshiping, learning at the apostles' feet. The apostles teach them everything that Christ had taught them. But then there was an incident. And this thing, it can be viewed as horrible, and it was. But it can also be viewed as what kick-started the church to do what Christ had commissioned them to do and what the Holy Spirit had come to empower them to do. And that was to be witnesses all over the world. And that is the stoning of Stephen. We know that Stephen delivers, and I won't go through all that tonight because we're not talking about Stephen. We're going to talk about Paul, but Stephen delivers a very powerful message. In fact, very uh, what we would define as confrontational message. He didn't mind looking at the Jews 
and the leadership of the Jews there that had Christ sentenced to death, and letting them know, you killed him, and you killed the Messiah. And he makes that very clear, to which they became angry. And he says that they gnashed their teeth at him. And then they began to pick up stones, which was their tradition. They didn't wait for any kind of trial or any kind of, uh, any kind of hearing. They just picked up the stones and said, we're going to take care of business um, our way. And what they did, if you remember the account, they stoned Stephen. Uh, but as they were stoning him, Stephen was praying. What a testament that we see there. Uh, it says in, in Acts chapter 7, in the latter verses there, in 59 and 60, it says, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and cried out. Watch what he says. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. It was there that Stephen fell asleep from this life, and we know that he was in the presence of the Lord immediately. There's an interesting detail that I want us to pay attention to in the first verse of 8 there. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. As tragic as we see the martyrdom of Stephen, though it was the thing that propelled the church to be obedient to the Great Commission, there was a man named Saul there. And he was the one who gave the thumbs up, the approval um, for Stephen to be stoned in the manner that he was. Now, watch this. <laughs> Oftentimes we miss this. Saul was one of the ones that Stephen was praying for while he was being stoned. Stephen's prayer was answered in the fact that God did forgive Saul. Many times we read right past that. We don't put all the dots together. Saul there, giving the approval to murder the man named Stephen. It goes on to say this, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Did Christ's will happen? Yes, it did. It goes on and said, to say, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul, here's this character again, began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So here we have this man, Saul. And what is he doing? He just gave approval for the death of Stephen. And now what he's doing is he is bringing destruction upon the church, going from house to house, dragging out men and women, and putting them in prison. So we see a little glimpse into Paul's past. There's no greater glimpse, I don't believe, than if we turn to Acts chapter 22. Because Luke gives a pretty good account there on the history of it. But in Acts chapter 22, this is the apostle Paul telling his story. And as he is there in Acts chapter 22, verse 6, he tells his own story. He says, that there in verses 1 through 5, he says, as he spoke in Aramaic, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. They were now persecuting this man named Paul who was once Saul. Watch what he says about himself. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. And then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus. He goes on, he says, but brought up in this city under Gamaliel. Now, he lets them know, I, I'm not some 
dummy who doesn't know your traditions. I'm not some dummy who doesn't know your culture, your religion. He says, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just and zealous for God as any of you are today. Paul, by his own admission, says this, I persecuted the followers of the way. That, that was what they referred to the Christians as, the way. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said that you persecuted the followers of the way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. Paul is admitting, that's what I used to be. As also the high priest and all the council can testify, I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Now look at the life of Saul. He is testifying here before this hearing when he has been arrested. He's saying, I'm not hiding who I was. I'll tell you exactly who I was. But the great news is this. We can look at his past we can gather all these things. And in fact, the early church was afraid of this man named Saul who would become a powerful leader in the church of Christ. He says, that's, that's right, that's what I was. But we see his conversion, and he's going to continue in Acts chapter 22. He's going to tell us about that conversion. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, he says, About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. The Lord responded, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. I find that so interesting. They knew something happened, but only his sheep hear his voice. Saul heard his voice. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. He said, Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. He had a God-ordained assignment. He didn't know that yet. He thought his assignment was to persecute the church, to, to give the death orders to men like Stephen, and to drag out men and women, and to have them arrested and put into prison. He thought he was doing a good thing. You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. Don't forget that. But here God says, I've got another assignment for you to do. He says, my companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. He's blind. He has encountered the Lord. And a man named Ananias came to see me. And Ananias, he was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. And he stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that moment, very moment, I was able to see him. And then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear the words from his mouth. Was Saul sovereignly chosen to become Paul and to become the apostle to the Gentiles? Yes, I want you to see that. It wasn't like he was walking along one day and he just decided he was going to have a change of heart. For all the people who say that the Holy Spirit's a gentleman, he won't just drag you into the will of God. You might want to talk to Saul about that. In fact, God approached him and said, I got another assignment for you. You don't realize this yet, but you belong to me. You belong to me since before the foundations of the earth, and I have a set plan for you. 
He goes on and says, you will be witness, be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. So what happened there is God sovereignly regenerates Saul to believe. And what does he do? He calls on the name of the Lord, and he follows the Lord in obedience to being baptized as a sign of his repentance and faith. So we see the conversion of that man named Saul as he became Paul. Go back in Acts chapter 9. Let's look at Luke's account. Let's check these two out as we did the others. Let's compare and contrast. Luke telling the story here in Acts. He says in verse 1 of 9, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Please pay attention to that. He was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Any of you thankful here that Christ saved you out of your sin? He didn't wait until you got it all right, met him halfway, and accredited somehow righteousness to you. No, he was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Sounds accurate compared to the testimony that we just saw of Saul. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Notice that the Lord didn't ask him or beg him to do it. Get up and go, and I'll tell you what you must do. You were created, designed, fitted for this. This is what you're going to do with the rest of your life, and one day you're going to give your life for this. Go, I'll tell you more. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the, the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called, called to him in a vision, Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. And ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. I guess he was. Lightning blasts from heaven, and the Lord speaks to you while you were actually fighting against his people and his name. I guess you were praying at that moment in time. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, 
he regained his strength. We see the conversion story of Saul to Paul, according to Luke's testimony, but also in 2022, we saw it according to the testimony of Saul himself as he appeared upon arrest and gave testimony of what had happened. So we see there was a conversion in the life of Saul where he became Paul. It was a God-ordained conversion. He was chosen and he was called. So we look at that next, his calling. As we've already seen in Acts, he was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Romans chapter 1, he makes that very clear. Paul, a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Paul understood that he was specifically called and commissioned by Christ as an apostle. The apostle to the Gentiles. Romans chapter 11, verse 13. I am talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I make much of my ministry. So when we study Ephesians, we are going to see that we are studying the teachings of the apostle to the Gentiles. We being Gentile believers need to pay close attention to these things. We need to understand these things. The same words and lessons that the apostle Paul wrote to the Gentile church at Ephesus are the same words and lessons that we need to receive in our lives as Gentile believers in this world today. It was Paul who had received that specific calling. Acts chapter 19, verse 15, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. We've already looked at that. There it is again. Galatians chapter 1. says, I want you to know this, verse 11, brothers, that the gospel I preach is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. He said, I was climbing the religious ladder. I was doing well. But when God, watch this, who set me apart from birth. That's why Paul can write with such authority about the sovereignty of God in electing those who God desires and chooses to be his own and to serve him. He understood it personally. Why? He had experienced that. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia, later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. Many people don't realize this, but approximately 9 to 11 years, the apostle Paul went away only to be taught specifically by the Lord. And then he went and met with the brothers in Jerusalem. He goes on in verse 19. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that I am writing you, what I am writing you is no lie. Later I went to Syria and to Cilicia. He goes on to say, I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. That's the testimony of the Apostle Paul 
to his calling and his conversion. Very important that we see that. He's letting them know. He's letting the church know at Galatia, look, I'm not being influenced by anyone else. I'm not being influenced by Peter. I'm not being influenced by Bartholomew. I'm not being influenced by Matthew. I've been influenced by Christ. I've not even met with any of them. I haven't even had contact with any of them but James, because at that time, James was the one who was there. He's saying, my authority is from Christ. He is the one who has called me and commissioned me as the apostle to the Gentiles. He was, in fact, the last apostle that was called. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about this in verse 8. He says, and last of all, he appeared to me. He goes and he gives in the verses prior to this the calling of the other apostles. And then he says this, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. He said, he didn't appear to me like he appeared to the others. That is true. He appeared to me as one abnormally born. He had a specific purpose for me. But I meet the requirements because Christ has appeared to me and he has specifically taught me. Sometime in that 9 to 11 years, Paul received direct instruction from the Lord. He's letting people know that this is true. He says, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. What humility. I don't even deserve to be called one because I was persecuting them at one time. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace to me was not without effect. What a statement. He's talking about efficacious grace. He's saying His grace to me was not something that didn't do anything. His grace changed my life. His grace produced the effect that God desired it to produce. He goes on, he says, No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. He said, Yes, and I have worked hard. You know why the Apostle Paul was so influential and still influential today in the church of Christ? Because he was not afraid of work. That's for all you men who feel like you might be called to preach in some special way. Let me say this. It's hard work. If you're not willing to do hard work, you don't need, even need to consider it. Paul said, I worked harder than all of them. That's why I'm making the impact that I make. It comes with hard work, and God honors hard work, doesn't he? We see the calling of this great apostle to the Gentiles. I want us to look at the location of where he wrote this letter so that we kind of have an idea about that, and we will reference back to that many times. But while he was imprisoned in Rome, his imprisonment there in this time, there in Acts chapter 28, was house arrest. He was imprisoned by the Romans, but he was granted the ability to live in an, his own rented house, and they kept close watch on him. We have an account of that in Acts chapter 28. He says this in verse 16, when we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. That is Luke giving this account of how it happened. Verse 31, we see again more info on that. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul was under house arrest, guess what he didn't stop doing? He, didn't, he, didn't, he never stopped preaching and teaching the gospel, preaching and teaching the scriptures, and encouraging the churches that he had relationships with. One of those churches is the church at Ephesus. So Paul's epistle here 
known as one of his prison epistles. They call these his prison epistles because he wrote these letters while he was under arrest by the Romans. Uh, he wrote what we have, we are going to study, known as Ephesians. He also wrote Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon as he was under arrest under Roman authority. And so we have a little glimpse into the life of the Apostle Paul, very important as we open the study of Ephesians. Now let's get to a little bit of Ephesians tonight before we wrap this up and end it um, so that we can kind of get a little taste of it and get excited about what we are going to be seeing. I want us to look at the central themes. And I say central themes because... um, Ephesians is full of themes. Now, I will tell you this, as I have read through it again and again and again, and as I am preparing to teach this to you guys, um, I I see a theme that is, in my opinion, the overarching theme of all Ephesians. Now, there are guys who are probably way uh, greater theologians and students of the Bible um, than me who would argue with me, and that's okay, you're entitled to your opinion, because I'm strictly just giving you my opinion on what I think is the overarching theme and that is the riches in Christ. Uh, we see riches in Christ appears over and over and over again in Ephesians. And, man, I want us to get that. I want us to get that true riches, our sufficiency, our true treasure is found in Christ and Christ alone. He speaks of the riches over and over and over again that are found in Christ he speaks of them in this manner in, in verses, uh, in chapter 1, verse 7, in chapter 2, verse 8, he speaks of the riches of God's grace. Verse 7 of chapter 1 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. He says in Ephesians 2 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. We see glorious riches in the grace of God. I pray as men that we would understand that as we go through this letter, that that Paul wants Christian people to understand that, that our riches are not found in this world. We've chased that before, haven't we, men? Some of you, unfortunately, might still be doing that. I pray that by the end of this study, you put all those things behind you. You see the riches of God In Christ, the riches of His grace. He's going to talk about that extensively in Ephesians, but also the riches He he talks about in in verse 18 of chapter 1, the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints. Our true riches are in Christ, and our true riches are not of this earth. We have an inheritance in Christ. He's going to explain that to us, and if, if you have a shouter in here, You know what I'm saying? That thing inside of you that shouts? When you get to that part and you don't shout, something's wrong with you. Because we're going to see the glorious riches of His grace that we have been given in Christ Jesus when we deserve the wrath of God in hell. And then on top of that, He is going to then pour His glorious riches out even further in the inheritance that awaits the saints. Verse 18 says this of chapter 1, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Glorious inheritance. How do we receive 
that inheritance. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are adopted into the lineage of Christ and into his inheritance. What a privilege. He's going to talk much about that. We see the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints. He then talks in chapter 3, verse 8, about the unsearchable riches of Christ. If the, the riches of God's grace and the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints is not enough, he's going to also then talk about the unsearchable riches of Christ. These things that are so big, the magnitude of the riches that we have in Christ, so big that they are unsearchable. You cannot exhaust them. Chapter 3, verse 8 speaks of that. Although I'm less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Isn't it interesting that we can begin to study Christ? We can spend our whole life doing it. I have thus far since I have been born again. And never begin to scratch the surface of how rich Christ is. The riches that we have access to in Christ are unsearchable. It's so exciting to open the Scriptures and to learn more about Christ and to think, Man, maybe I have finally exhausted the Savior, only to realize you have done nothing yet. To turn the next page and to see again the riches of Christ. How glorious and unsearchable these riches are. We're going to learn about that in this epistle. The glorious riches, unsearchable in Christ. Then he speaks in chapter 3 again of another aspect to riches in Christ, and this is God's glorious riches through the power of the Holy Spirit. How we enjoy those things now through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Look what he says in 3.16. I pray that out of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being. What kind of price tag could we put on the indwelling Holy Spirit? We can think of all of the riches of the world, and if you have walked with Christ long enough to value the indwelling Holy Spirit, to see His worth in us, they could pile up all the money that the treasuries of the world could hold, and you would walk away from them holding and clinging to the indwelling Holy Spirit because in the Holy Spirit's power, you have access to the riches of God in Christ Jesus the unlimited, unsearchable riches. Oh, think back to that time when you were overwhelmed with the peace of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That peace surpassed all of your understanding. You got that call. You got that news. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you were filled with a peace that you could not even explain. And it was that peace Reassuring you that a sovereign God has you in the grip of His grace and that there is nothing that is ever going to overtake you or overcome you because Christ has overcome this world. Put a price tag on that. How much is that worth to you? If you have been through that and you value the power of the Holy Spirit and the riches that we have in Christ, you would say this, all the money in the world, I would forfeit it all to have the power of the Holy Spirit in my life as it was in that moment because you cannot buy those kinds of riches. So we see that he talks about the glorious riches through the power of the Holy Spirit in chapter 3. Then we move on 
Uh, that being the overarching theme, in my opinion, there are other themes that we will definitely uncover, the grace of God in salvation. We see that very clearly in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Uh, those of you who have studied Romans, we went to chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Ephesians a lot. Those of you who studied um, the doctrines of grace, we went to Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2 a lot. Those of you who know me, I spend a lot of time in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2. You ought to have it memorized by now. Why? Because it's very important because in those two chapters, we see the grace of God in salvation clearly explained. And you can't go there and see it and to honestly defend it from the opposite side. You can't go there and say that, that salvation is something other than grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and a monergistic act of God that was predetermined before the foundations of the earth. If you're going to take that stance, you need to erase Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2 from your Bible. When you go to 1 and 2, you see that. You see the grace of God in salvation, that it is God who graciously saves wicked man, and wicked man did nothing. Dead, spiritual, depraved, unredeemed, wicked man did nothing to merit or to deserve his salvation. It is through Christ and Christ alone, according to the grace of God in salvation. It's God who saves. He's going to make that clear in chapter 1 and 2. We see then the mystery of Christ revealed in chapter 3. This mystery, interesting word. He's not talking about, ooh, mystery. He's talking about something that was kept concealed. And it was concealed. And this thing that was concealed, the reality of Christ, is being revealed through Paul. What was that reality? That, that Jews and Gentiles alike are being joined together in Christ as one body. Co-equal in their relationship to God, to His church, and in their citizenship in heaven. Ephesians 3, he's going to... Tell us much about that. Then we see he moves on to, in chapter 4 through 6, proper living for the church. How are we to live out these things that he is going to teach us in chapters 1 through 3? How do we apply this? What does this look like? He's going to cover the practical aspect of Christian behavior and what that looks like when we live it out in obedience to Christ. What does that look like in the believer who is being sanctified? The point of all this is that he covered theological teachings in the first three chapters for a purpose. And that purpose was to bring believers in Ephesus to a place of appreciation for God. When you read the first three chapters of Ephesians, you walk away and you're not full of thanksgiving and appreciation to God in Christ Jesus, something's wrong with you. You need to revisit and ask yourself, do you truly know Christ? Have you truly been saved? For those of us who are saved, you read those first three chapters that are so rich in doctrine and theology, you have a whole new appreciation for the grace of God, the grace of God in saving you, what He did through the work of Jesus Christ. Now, because of that appreciation, the last three chapters are going to show us here's how you live if you really appreciate what you saw in chapters 1 through 3. If you really appreciate grace, here's what your life is going to look like. If you really understand grace, here's what your life's going to look like. You are going to overflow with thanksgiving. You know what the overflow of thanksgiving looks like for the Christian? Obedience 
for Christ. You're going to obediently live for Christ, not out of an obligation trying to earn salvation. Chapters 1 through 3 are going to make that very clear. You can't earn salvation. It is by grace you have been saved. He's going to make that so clear. So we don't have to live our lives, as many people find themselves doing, trying to gain God's approval, trying to gain salvation. He's going to tell you salvation is a gift from God. But now that you have that gift, if you really understand that gift, live a life of appreciation for the gift that you have received. And that appreciation will look like obedience in your life. You see how many people have been deceived into getting it backwards? If I live obedient, He'll graciously save me. (laughs) You can't live obedient until He graciously saves you. That's moralism. You're just trying to do good to try to earn something. That's legalism. You're trying to justify yourself by your action. He's going to make it very clear can't do that. Chapters 1 through 3, chapters 3 through 6, he's going to say, here's what it's going to look like if you get it. So you can find out as we study Ephesians, by the end of this, whether you really get it or whether you don't. And I hope that you get it. Because we know this, there's enough people in this world who say that they get it and they don't really get it. I hope when we get through studying this, you come to the conclusion, thank you, Lord. Though maybe I didn't get it before, maybe there's been times where I haven't gotten it in my life in the past, thank you, Lord, that I do understand this now. That I am fixed in you because of your grace. I am sealed. I am secure. And I am thankful. Because I am thankful, I will live all of my days for your glory because of what Christ has done for me. And then in chapter 6, the second part, or the last part there, he is going to tell us what it looks like and how we can stand against evil. We're going to get there to that famous chapter about the full armor of God. Now, You know what the church has done forever? Jump right to chapter 6, the full armor of God, and never teach you chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. They jump straight to the armor of God. You can't stand in the armor of God if you don't understand the principles behind each element of that armor. What we're going to do is we're going to actually look from chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to walk into the armor of God, and what you're going to do, you're going to get your first lesson on the armor of God, probably most of you, in its proper context, after you see everything that makes the armor of God possible. Let me just go on and tell you this. It has nothing to do with you. Everything to do with Christ. So when we look at those things, when you put on the helmet of salvation, you know this. (laughs) It's not salvation because I deserve it. It's not salvation because I'm good. It's salvation that protects me. And it's salvation that is by grace, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You're going to really understand what the armor of God is really about because you understand the principles that allow the armor to be possible. We're going to learn how to stand against evil. We can never stand until our theology is sound. I love that. Paul gives us a lesson on theology first, and then he says stand. Isn't it funny that the church has that backwards? Let's learn about standing and never give you the theology and the doctrine to stand upon. We wonder why so many fall. But I was putting on the armor of God. I had a picture by my bed, and every morning I said, I'm putting on the helmet of salvation, and I'm putting on the belt of truth, and Don't get mixed up in that kind of thinking. We're going to see it differently, I hope, as we study this, that we can never take a stand unless we understand the theological concepts in which we stand. We stand in Christ and Christ alone. He upholds us. So when we understand those things, the armor of God makes sense. It's more than just putting on a uniform and going to battle and charging out with some battle cry. No, it's about us learning how to fight. It's about us learning how to fight fight that he's called us to fight, the way that he's called us to fight it. 
using the resources that he has graciously given us, the riches that we have in Christ Jesus, then it's all going to make sense. So I'll say this as we wrap this up, get ready for an exciting journey. I, I hope tonight this is more than anything a fire up the crowd message to get you ready to dive into this. I know some of you are upset. Why don't we just jump into Ephesians? There's so much that we have to look at before we can even get to verse 1. We've looked at those things. So get ready for an exciting journey uh, through this small and six chapters. Six small chapters. Right? You could go home tonight in less than 10 minutes. Most of you could read all of this. I would encourage you to read it several times as we are going through this, just as I have everything that we have studied. Read it, read it, read it, read it. Every time you read it, something else is going to jump out at you. Get ready for this. It's going to be a time where we're going to learn more about God. We're going to learn more about who He is. We're going to see His instructions. We're going to see, receive encouragement to be and to do what He has called us as saints of God to be and to do. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this night. We thank You for this brief intro where we have just looked into what we will be studying, Lord. And we just pray that You would prepare our hearts and our minds by your Spirit, to absorb these truths and to see them as a biblical foundation to everything that we know, and that you would, by your Spirit, teach us to walk in these things and to appreciate Christ even more so than we do now. Lord, we know this. Even though many of us appreciate him now, our appreciation could always grow. That's my prayer. My prayer for each of these men is as we see this letter as it was unfolded to your church in days gone by, and is being unfolded to us, God, I pray that you, through your Spirit, would encourage each of these men to appreciate Christ all the more, to be humbled, to bow in thanksgiving every day, to know that everything that we experience as believers is a gift of your grace, and we're thankful for that. God, I pray that you use it to empower to encourage, to excite these men in this room as they seek to do your will, as they seek to follow you, as they seek to be obedient followers of their master. May you be glorified in everything that we learn, everything that we say, everything that we do. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope that you have grown through the teaching of God's Word. If you would like to find out more information about Key Life Fellowship, visit our website, keylifefellowship.com, or you can email us at info at keylifefellowship.org. We would love for you to join us in person. Our men's Bible study meets every Thursday night at 7 p.m. here at the Key Life Fellowship campus located in New Caney, Texas. Or feel free to join us at one of our Sunday worship services as well. As we conclude today's lesson, I will leave you with one reminder. Go out and be the light in a lost, dark world.